0: Lynn Mary Unity Podcast. Our work seeks to enhance understanding, reduce alienation, and foster reconciliation between Catholics and those within the evangelical and Pentecostal streams of Christianity. Today I'm joined by Father Walter Kujerski. Father Kujerski is the Executive Director for the Secretariat of Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. With that, Father Kaczorski leads the various dialogues and initiatives that the bishops within the U.S. host to deepen Christian unity, foster greater engagement with the Jewish community, and connect with those within other religions. Many may not know that the bishops in the U.S. alone, not to mention international dialogues through the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, have multiple dialogues going to various denominations and Christian groups, including Episcopalians, Evangelicals, the Methodist Church, and most recently, an exploratory dialogue with the Pentecostal Charismatic Churches of North America, a group representing some 40 million members in North America, which began in September of 2021 in Washington, D.C. The goal of all these dialogues is to seek truth, to learn about how Christ is at work within another, and to foster an ever-deepening unity between Christians. I'm excited to share this interview with you as Father Kaczorski and his team at the USCCB are doing fantastic work, and his insights have shaped my own ministry in profound ways. With that, enjoy this conversation with Father Walter Kaczorski. Well, Father Walt, thank you for joining us on the call today. I'm excited to, to learn from you and for our listeners to learn from you as well. I was wondering if you could just start us off by Giving us uh, some of your own background and your interest in ecumenism, and, and how did this begin?
1: Thank you so much, Nathan. It truly is a pleasure to be here with you today. And, and just allow me to begin uh, by commending you and the good work of Mary Missioners in terms of ecumenical outreach um, to our, especially our, our dear brother and sister uh, Christians. Um, truly, everything that you're doing mm-hmm. is quite edifying, and, and I just really appreciate it. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you today. Okay. Um, In terms of of, of my involvement in in ecumenism, I guess you could say it started pretty early in terms of my interest. You know, I I would link it to uh, when I received my first Holy Communion as a young child. I remember going up and receiving Holy Communion and my family all going up with the exception of my my mother's mother. My grandmother did not come up. She simply uh, remained in her seat. So after the mass, I, I went to my mother, and I asked, why, why didn't grandma come on up? And, and my mother told me something I, I had never heard of before. She said that my, my grandmother was a Protestant. Um, and to tell you the truth, in the area where I lived, the vast majority of people were Catholic. Um, we didn't have hardly many Protestants at all. And so, so this was a whole new world for me. Um, my grandmother grew up in Tennessee. She was a member of of the Church of Christ, uh, a very devoted member um, who read her Bible every day and and was one of the the most devout Christians I've I've ever known in my life. Um, But she did not come forward. Um, And I just said to myself back then, this this isn't right. Uh, We have to do something. We have to try our best to come closer together and and to break down those, those barriers that are presented preventing us from coming together to share in the Eucharist. Uh, So I guess that that was in a sense how how I I started to get involved in ecumenism. And then as time went on, uh, that interest developed um, and I I entered into some studies and um, started to get involved in a formal way in the diocese with ecumenical outreach in particular, being taught by Bishop William Murphy, who um, has... uh, been involved in, in various efforts, especially in the realm of, of interreligious dialogue um, and outreach to the Jewish community. He taught me a lot about dialogue. Uh, Bishop Barres, who, who, who took on the role of, of Bishop of my Diocese of Rockville Center on, on Long Island, uh, continued to encourage my interest. And then I, I was invited to this um, leadership position, uh, serving on the staff of, of the USCCB's uh, Committee for Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. It's really interesting to me, uh, the more I get to know people involved in the ministry of ecumenism, is that the impetus came from a, a family experience, you know, of, uh, of somebody coming from a different uh, Christian tradition. And that's just not sitting right with them, that there's some sort of divide there, some sort of gap. Uh, you know, it's not just simply, it, it, the, the, the differences are, can certainly be very um, acute when it comes that way, you know, rather than just simply being on paper. And I think it maybe makes the wound of our, of our division uh, much more palpable for, for those who are involved in the work of ecumenism.
1: Absolutely. I, I would say uh, very much so the, the type of work we do for, for, many who are impassioned about it, it's, it's a family affair. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, I, I even think about my own staff uh, that, that I, I work with uh, you know, we, we have um, one of our staff members, his wife, is uh, a pastor in the United Methodist Church. Another um, did not start out in in the Catholic tradition, but entered the Catholic tradition later on. Um, And then another was born in in, in a a Catholic Jewish uh, family. So actually everyone uh, involved in the professional staff here at the USCCB in ecumenism considers this a a family affair.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful, that's wonderful. Those are the people you want in it. Yep. So, could you just describe a little bit about your role with the with the USCCB? How long has uh, the Catholic Church in the U.S. specifically been engaging in these types of formal dialogues with evangelicals and Pentecostals, in particular, but also uh, other other Christian groups?
1: Absolutely. That, that that there's there's a lot to describe there. You know, um, that, that is one thing I I have to say about um being given this responsibility. I, I I've seen. A side of the church that many don't see in terms of, of, of being in, in um, involved with the U.S. Uh, Bishops uh, Conference, um, and, and seeing sort of the procedures and, and what could be considered the bureaucracy. Mm. Uh, but but in, in the midst of that, you you, you discover um, really a, a richness in terms of, of reflection and prayer and just a, a love of Christ that animates. Mm. The decision-making that that happens. Mm-hmm. In terms of my role at the USCCB, I am, uh, my title is Executive Director of the Secretariat for Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs, um, and in that role, I, I, I assist um, a committee. Um, actually, there, there are currently um, six bishops on this committee, which is the Committee for Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs, and in effect, it is is the bishops currently Bishop uh, David Talley of Diocese of Memphis is the chairman of of the committee. It is it is the role of, of the bishops to to articulate the vision and to really direct the the tenor of ecumenical dialogues here in the United States. And in the midst of that articulation, my role and, and the role of our staff, at the secretariat is is to actualize that to do. The, the, the practical steps in order to make these ecumenical dialogues become a reality. Here, here at the USCCB, the committee um, steers the ship, the secretariat makes sure that it all happens. Um, and the secretariat um, consists of myself as executive director and then we have two associate directors. We have Father Ron Roberson, who is a Paulist priest. He, he is a specialist in Eastern Christianity. Um, And and staffs are our dialogues uh, with Orthodox Christians, Oriental Orthodox Christians, also um, some other dialogues such as the um, dialogue with the Anglican Communion um, with Polish National Catholic Church. Then we we have an associate director who is responsible for interreligious relations, Dr. Anthony Sorelli, who is a lay scholar. And then we also have on our staff a, a, a research specialist by the name of Rebecca Cohen. And, and her specialty is Catholic-Jewish relations. And then, someone who, who makes sure that that everything is organized for us is, is Ms. Tiffany Mason. Um, and, and Tiffany's husband is um, is in the midst of ministry uh, with um, ba- with Baptists. Um, I believe it's it's the North American Baptists. Hmm. Um, so, all of us, as I said, have, have sort of a, a family uh, commitment um, in in terms of, of the the work. Of the secretariat and the committee. Uh, we, we, we have a very long history at this point that I, I think we can be really proud of the fact that, you know, those who have gone before us were really visionary in terms of trying to enact the vision of the Second Vatican Council. It was in the midst of the Second Vatican Council that, that our work began. The USCCB itself actually has its roots in the First World War. Uh, the, the initial um, manifestation of the USCCB was actually called the National Catholic War Council, and which which, which sounds <laughs> it sounds a little bit intimidating, but it's actually not it not at all. And they, they got together because you know in the aftermath of the First World War, uh, you you had many families that unfortunately uh, lost the breadwinner. In the midst of the war, there there was great suffering and the bishops came together and said, we need to work together in efforts to help alleviate the suffering and the pain and sometimes the poverty that that resulted from that era. And so the bishops got together for this initial cause and then said, this is a great idea. We should get together on other things and collaborate together. And and hence, um, bishops conferences uh, were really born uh, as a result of that experience. And so... um, Time went on. Uh, you, you had the manifestation of of the National uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, where where they said, you know, Vatican II is happening. What are we going to do about it? Especially, you know, one one of one of the main uh, motivations of the Second Vatican Council was this work toward Christian unity. It was a major priority. And so the bishops here in the U.S. said, what What are we going to do about it? How can we work together to support each other in in this this vision that that the Second Vatican Council is really calling us to. So in April of 1964, think about it, the documents are are being produced. In 1964, an ad hoc committee was developed by the Bishop's Conference to investigate how we in the US should handle um, the ecumenical commitment the Second Vatican Council was calling us to. And then in November of that year, November 1964, the Bishop's Committee is established and then with, with that committee, we had um, Lawrence Cardinal Sheehan of Baltimore as our first chairman. And the, the committee decided the first thing they wanted to do was establish a secretariat of mm. professional staff uh, that that would be there um, to, to assist them. So in January 1965, the, the secretariat was established. The first executive director, the first person in my position was Monsignor, who would later on become Cardinal William Baum. And he was followed by Monsignor, later Cardinal Bernard Law. And I'll just mention when, when I when I look at the list of my predecessors, almost all of them became bishops or cardinals, mm-hmm. uh, which which is intimidating to me when I look at that sort of a list. But you think about it; it says something I think about the church's um, appreciation. Of the importance of ecumenical outreach, yeah. how crucial it is, and really the, the gifted individuals um up until me that they chose uh for, for for this sort of a position, really really gifted individuals um who serve the church very well. Mm-hmm. So believe it or not, you have your your committee established in 1964, right in 1965 at the beginning, the secretariat mm-hmm. formed, and then our dialogues start to develop immediately after that. I mean you think about this, the committee and the secretariat worked very hard right away. In March of 1965, our, our, our dialogue with the uh, Lutherans, um, the Lutheran Catholic National Dialogue, coordinated by the U.S. Committee of the Lutheran World Federation, was developed. Um, in June of 1965, our Anglican uh, National Dialogue developed. In July of 65, our, our Reformed Dialogue Uh, developed. So right away, you have all of these uh, different uh, dialogues uh, Mm -hmm. springing up. In 1965 in September, the Catholic Orthodox Dialogue uh, Mm -hmm. develops. So so there's a lot there. I'll just mention, uh, for the sake of completeness, at this point, you actually had three secretariats and committees at work. You had a, a committee for humanism, that we're talking about here. There was also a separate committee uh, for interreligious relations and a separate committee and secretariat uh, for Jewish Affairs. Okay. So actually they, they were separate at one point, but uh, through the years there have been efforts at reducing costs and, and staffing. So so today we have the manifestation of, of the, the three in one mm-hmm. sort of and sounding of ecumenism, interreligious relations, and 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 Catholic Jewish relations. Um, all, all under one roof. We, we're called the Secretariat of Ecumenical and Religious Affairs, but we tend to, to talk about having three dialogues because of the unique relationship we have with the Jewish community and are, are honoring them as um, having a covenant that God has maintained with them because God is always faithful to his mm-hmm. promises. So uh, to, to get into to the question, I think you're very interested in, in terms of evangelicals and Pentecostals. Um we, we have uh, some vibrant relationships and, and different activities um, that are taking place. I'm going to, there, there, I'll just say to start, there, there are many initiatives that our bishops committee and secretariat were not exactly involved with. And in many ways, this is good because, you know, there's a certain freedom there for people to explore different areas without necessarily the involvement of bishops um, the, the initial work that the bishops can build on as people you know, sort of explore mm-hmm. different aspects of theology, different aspects of, of Christian living. Uh, they come to conclusions that at times the bishops can reflect upon and, and, and affirm uh, because of those explorations. Um, so, so we're not involved with everything. There's some wonderful initiatives that are going on on the local level. Um, and between different scholars that, that are terrific. But I'm going to be confining myself to to activities that the USCCB is, is specifically involved with. And by USCCB, I mean specifically the bishops. The USCCB equals the US bishops. You know, a lot of people think, well, maybe it's some sort of entity that, that the bishops are re- listening to or, or tells the bishops what to do. Actually, no. The USCCB is the bishops. The bishops run the USCCB. It is the bishops together. So the activities that the USCCB has has been directly in, been involved with. Um, we'll start off with the Evangelicals, then we'll spend some time thinking about the Pentecostals. With the Evangelicals, um, one of the things we, we should say to start off is, is those relationships are unique in the sense of, we, we have some relationships, say, with the Orthodox Christians, with the Anglican Communion, that would have as a very clear focus visible unity, structural unity between our, our churches, uh, whereas that's not always at the forefront of, of the thoughts of evangelicals. And in fact, sometimes, you know, it would be difficult to find someone who could speak for a whole aspect of the movement. Hence, you, you have different, What the way we enter into these dialogues is we have different scholars, Uh, who don't claim to hold juridical authority in their denominations, but are influential in seminaries.
0: These are evangelical scholars.
1: Yep, exactly. We we deal with the evangelical scholars. um, And they speak for themselves, but also the the, the thoughtfulness of their traditions uh, as we enter into these dialogues. So there, there are some collaborations that we can note in 1994 There was a document that we worked on together, Evangelicals and Catholics Toward a Common Mission that helped forge a new relationship. We've we've done collaborations on social justice issues, and and we continue to do those. In 2013, there was a statement, a Christian call for immigration reform Mm -hmm. um, and a gathering at the Poverty Summit Georgetown University in 2015. But thinking specifically about the theological uh, work there, there was a dialogue that really um, was developed initially by Bishop Arthur Kennedy, who is one of my my predecessors, and a fellow by the name of Mon Clayton, and they, they met formally from two thousand and three to two thousand and eight to enter into uh, deep theological conversations and and background work in terms of, of the dialogue, um, and then eventually there, there there were there were how shall I say. Um, different uh, moments where where the dialogue was more active or less active um, but but as of late the dialogue has been quite active meeting on an annual basis um, in January of, of 2019 the dialogue published a text justified in Jesus Christ about soteriology it was published by the University of Mary press um, and is available and we are about to um, this year 2022, publish a text on ethics. Um, It's going to be published by by the um, publisher at at St. Paul Seminary in in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the dialogue has been quite active um, in terms of publishing texts with the hope that these texts will promote further conversation and dialogue. The the dialogue is chaired by Bishop David Keegan, who is the Bishop of Bismarck, North Dakota, and we have a fine group of scholars mm-hmm. uh, in that dialogue. So um, just some other things in terms of evangelicals to mention. Um, we have a group that that you that I, I know you've heard of, and hopefully our listeners have heard of, called CCT, Christian Churches Together, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful organization that tries to bring church leaders together uh, for conversation and engagement. It's, it's a very wide table. It's really the widest table. Here in the United States, representing Catholics, historic Protestants, historic uh, Black church members, Christian Orthodox, Evangelicals and Pentecostals. And we come together at least annually Mm -hmm. uh, for further discussion um, and and development. We also have the National Workshop for Christian Unity, Mm -hmm. uh, which meets annually and and, and has involved with it a network of, of Evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we're able to work with, with mainline Protestants, uh, the Evangelicals, um, the USCCB is involved, and we do have some Orthodox involvement um, without a, a network at this point. So that's a wonderful gathering. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to say that Alexei Laushkin, who is uh, in charge of the Kingdom Mission Society, um is on our National Association of Ecumenical Officers, mm-hmm. uh, which consists of, of um, representatives of, of some mainline Protestant denominations, myself and Alexi. That that's a recent um addition. So, so those are wonderful opportunities we have mm-hmm. for engagement with evangelicals. Um and then uh, to go on to to Pentecostals, unless um Unless you have any thoughts or questions about what I just said, I'm sorry, I'm going on
0: and on. Oh, no, no, no. This is fantastic. This is just, you know, so many people might not be familiar. I know when I got into ecumenical work, I was blown away by the amount of efforts that are already taking place, you know, and that I was unaware of just, you know, by my own ignorance. And uh, I think it's easy to miss those things. Um, And so it's good to get that kind of wide breadth of that. I'm kind of curious. Um, before we move on to the Pentecostals and the types of engagements we're having with them, um, you know, the uh, the the desire for ecumenism, at least how I understand it historically, maybe you could correct me. Uh, coming out of uh, the the historical Protestant churches in the early part of the 20th century, really came out of this experience of missions, and recognizing that some of them are are proselytizing pre-evangelized people if that's the right way to say it like oh my goodness you know we're we need to see how we can work together and uh so the early part of the 20th century saw this great influx of of missions work globally and uh the need for these denominations to know what the other person is doing and i think that desire for mission especially when you think of john 17 you know that the world might know that the father sent the son, the unity of, of his body of the, of, uh, of Christians. Um, I think a lot of people would point to that and be like, okay, this is why we do ecumenism. And I think that that, you know, that's perhaps one leg of it and a beautiful expression of unity and need for it. But uh, what is, what would you say, especially for somebody who is a Catholic person, why, what was the impetus for this Vatican II thinking of, ecumenism is really important to us that we're going to put all of our efforts into creating these secretariats, into creating these commissions. I I sense that that sense of mission is there, but is there something else along with that um, that maybe was the impetus?
1: That That is wonderful. Thank you so much, Nathan, for, for your comments and, and really reviewing for us a bit of the history in terms of the motivation. You know, uh, certainly... There were efforts at at Christian unity that that existed um, before this movement in in Protestantism. In particular, we're thinking about the World Missionary Conference over in Edinburgh Mm -hmm. uh, in in the early uh, 1920s, 1920, 1921. Um, But um, we we did have some efforts uh, beforehand. You think about Father Paul Watson. Uh, with the society of the atonement um, they're, they're the ones who, who actually developed the what we call today week of prayer for christian unity the idea of of reaching across denominational lines uh, to seek uh unity in christ uh, so there, there there were efforts before that but certainly i think the the complexity of of, of efforts at missionary work particularly in africa I think caused uh, our Protestant uh, friends to, to reflect upon the need for not stepping on each other's toes, having a sense of what the other is doing. And certainly the, the Christian Orthodox also very early on um, got involved in terms of, of, of even an encyclical that was written, let's get involved with, with working for, for the unity of the church. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right to say, well, it has to be more than just some sort of pragmatic you know, well, well, we don't want to step on each other's toes. We want to, we want to just be there to make sure people are, are coming to Christ first and our divisions don't get in the way. But in addition to that, I think particularly from a Catholic perspective, we consider the Christian unity is an inherent part of the identity of the church, you know, as, as we we say, in the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, and as as many other Christians say, by the way, in the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, every every Sunday, we believe in one holy Catholic Apostolic Church. Um, and, and we believe that the church has come from the life of the Trinity, who, who is who is three and one, you know, so so unity in the midst of, of diversity, and, and so the church by her nature always drives toward unity, always drives toward um, coming together. And, and the beautiful thing about the Second Vatican Council is that it began to, to really highlight how, how there, there are riches in other Christian denominations that we really have to notice. I, I like the way that Pope St. John Paul II described it in It's not as if there's some sort of ecclesial vacuum Outside of the Catholic Church, that you know there is just just nothing uh, to 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 celebrate in terms of, of, of the riches of our faith. We think about the gift of baptism. We think about the gift of the Holy Scriptures. We think about a, a, a beautiful commitment to Christ, even even leading to sometimes martyrdom mm-hmm. across denominational lines. You think about Pope Francis talking about uh, an ecumenism of blood, uh, which is something that should bring us all to prayer. And I think this is this is a dimension. That that is so important in terms of it, it just shows that that we recognize the the, the presence of Christ in, in our midst. We, we recognize that grace is mm-hmm. all around us, and it's it's important to name that sort of a. It, it's been called um, a hermeneutic of generosity, mm-hmm. really looking at at the other and seeing well 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 what what is is there in, in the other um, that is of Christ. I, I think a good way, even even Nathan, to think about that personally. Uh, in terms of your your own journey, that I know you you began your journey outside of, of the Catholic Church and you came to the Catholic Church. but it's not as if we're, we're saying your, your journey before what, what, what should be jettisoned, you know? That journey is valuable and important that, that that journey brought you to the point where you could say, well, I feel as if will I, I will best be in, in, in relationship with Christ. Uh, in, in the way I'm discerning things in the midst of the Catholic church, uh, but uh, but we don't say, Oh, well just forget about everything before. No, no, that, that's important. Uh, yeah. that, that brought you to this point.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's really helpful. So it's, it, it's, it's in a way that identifies that, that this is what the church is, you know, it's this expression of, uh, of the Trinitarian life in some ways, in, in an analogous way, perhaps, but, uh, that that being the church is one that does go out. And so there is the mission aspect for sure, but perhaps the only way to do that mission properly is to know what one is as yes. the identity of the church. Yeah. And one uh, expression that I think is making that in uh, a very much a, uh, a tangible, like, okay, right now, Jesus is right here, you know, uh, is coming out of a new expression of that is the Pentecostal movement. And so I cut you off before you were talking about our relationships with Pentecostals, but that uh, I was just kind of thinking about that. They, they talk about a theology of a, this is that what we see in the Bible is happening right now. Jesus is not far, but he's close. His spirit is close to us inside of us as close as our heart is to our chest, perhaps. And so, um, yeah, I was wondering if you can now uh, speak a little bit more about the uh, the Pentecostal relationships that we have. UC, UC. Absolutely.
1: But if I may, I'd like to take the liberty of expanding on what you just said, because it was very important. Important uh, First, you know, especially that, that idea of, of the closeness, you know, I, I think about John uh, reclining on, on, on the, the chest of our Lord at the Last Supper as we read it, it, in John's gospel. And even before that, that, uh, you know, in, in the first chapter of John's gospel, you, you, you have in the beginning, you know, thinking about the intimacy of, of the son with the father, you know, which, which some translate um, that, that, that verse in, in John 1 as, as our blessed Lord being. Lord, the word being in the bosom of the Father, this, this great, great intimacy, which is this, the same language that, that we hear in the Last Supper with John reclining on Jesus' breast. And, and to think about that that closeness, that, that intimacy that Christ did, invites us to, to have with him and also with each other is so very important. But also um, there, what you said brought to mind a, a traditional axiom that we sometimes use. That's what we do proceeds from who we are, mm-hmm. you know, and so that idea of we need to know who we are um, and who we are together. So we, we do enter into a theological dialogue together, mm-hmm. discerning, well, what exactly the, the, are we seeing? Um, we are as Christians and how, how does that correspond to how we act? Or sometimes do we fall short? And, and we honestly look at that together, um, that that's one of the great gifts of ecumenical dialogue. You, you be, in a sense become transparent to the other. You do this mutually with respect, even being able to talk about ways in which perhaps we we have fallen short of what Christ has called us to, and, and, and building on that together. So so thank you for for those wonderful comments. Um and so uh, to get into Pentecostals for a little bit. Um there have been some wonderful exciting developments. Um, in terms of our relationships with with Pentecostals. And actually, Nathan, you yourself have been a part of of some of those events, which have been just wonderful. I'll I'll speak in particular about a wonderful group, the Pentecostal Charismatic Churches of North America, which is sort of a fellowship of different Pentecostal denominations, including the Church of God in Christ, the Assemblies of God, Foursquare Church, International Pentecostal Holiness Church, um, and we've been in discussion with them for a while about developing a national dialogue. There have been international dialogues, but there's never been a national dialogue here in the United States. And, and some of my, my predecessors in, in the office, Father Al Baca and Brother Jeffrey uh, Groh, who was a very prolific writer, and I would recommend all of his writings. He, in a particular way, I, I would consider to be a mentor of mine in terms of, of my thought ecumenical theology um, there, there were initial conversations that eventually developed into uh, th- this past September um, a, an exploratory dialogue an exploratory theological dialogue uh, Nathan you you were you were at that session and I, I had the privilege of, of helping to co-chair mm-hmm. the session. And um, it, it was interesting entering in, into uh, the development of this. I'll, I'll tell you, it, it was something else. There, there was one time, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic, and and, and uh, the Reverend Dr. Harold Hunter of, of the Pentecostal Charismatic Churches of North America happens to be in the area uh, here in D.C., and so um, I went on over and, and, and we were in our masks and, and, and we were able to just sneak off for a cup of coffee despite all of these restrictions and everything. And we imagined together how, how this dialogue would, would work out. And um, I, I was intrigued that, that the topic that he said they were particularly interested in exploring was ritual and sacrament. Right, right. Um, and so we, we, we spoke together and, and we developed a plan to enter into this exploratory dialogue of of three years where we're going to to look at different aspects of the sacraments. So so this past September, uh, two papers uh, were were delivered, um, one by the Reverend Dr. Frederick Ware, who is a Dean at at the Divinity School at Howard University here in Washington, DC. And then also Dr. Kimberly Belcher, who is a professor, she teaches uh, liturgical theology at Notre Dame University. Um, So the two of them exchanged papers on the notion of initiation. Next year, we will have papers exchanged on on the notion of healing. And then the year after that, um, service and vocation. Um, It was a wonderful first run. I I hope you agree. (laughs) What was terrific was it was here in Washington and we toured sites of Catholic interest, such as the National Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, the Franciscan Monastery of, of the Holy Land, uh, Father Jim Gardner is there, who, who, is, who is a real veteran of, of ecumenical dialogue himself. Um, so, so that was a great experience. And now next year, I'm really excited. I hope you are, too, that, that we're going to be visiting Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where it's their turn uh, to, to host us and, and to expose us to, to the Pentecostal ethos mm-hmm. as we tried to expose them to the Catholic ethos. It was tremendous.
0: And it's so good to be able to do that because it's, it's pointing out that our divisions aren't just simply on paper, you know, and so our, our finding of unity is not going to be simply on paper either, that there's a whole context, a whole history uh, that uh, comes up from these different types of doctrines, you know, that develops in this way. And so it's, it's so important for uh, in, within ecumenical dialogue is to experience that from the other person. And what I really enjoyed was just, you know, getting lunch and dinner and breakfast with these people and, and then also just praying together. You know, there was a, a, new, um, a, a new way in which our unity was found in that experience.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm very glad you mentioned that because th- this was actually the first dialogue that met in person since the pandemic okay. began, that, that dialogue that past September. Um, we were meeting via Zoom and, and numerous dialogues have met since. And, and it's just the, 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 the difference is very tangible, I will say, in terms of when, when you're on a Zoom context, especially in the newer dialogues, theologians are feeling each other out, trying to have a sense of what they can say, what they can't say. Mm-hmm. It's much more complicated if you're doing it on a Zoom or virtual context. Um, that that makes it um, much more challenging. Mm-hmm. But when you're there in person, I find we, we we get to the business of theological dialogue much faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's just something about being in each other's presence. And you know, I'll, I, at this point, I'll just mention in case um, our listeners haven't seen it yet that the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity recently published a document on humanism during the pandemic
0: mm, yes. um, which, which is
1: very valuable and, and they, they did um, offer some some reflections from our committee mm-hmm. here in the United States but there it's uh, I would call it a synodal type of document in certain ways because it, it, it draws from all of the different bishops conferences experiences
0: yeah
1: um, but, but it's a helpful thing to look at.
0: Yeah, no, I, that's a that's a great document. I actually put that up on uh, the glenmaryunity.org website recently. If anybody wants to jump on there and download it and read that, because it's it's so interesting to see. This is you know uh, a a global view of people's experience of the pandemic and the continued work of ecumenism and a lot of really creative opportunities came through that through that difficulty. Um, moving to just. Thinking about you know that we have the publication of these of these formal documents, or you mentioned like the the book Justified Jesus Christ. How would you encourage seminaries, uh, dioceses, pastors, denominations, maybe even even uh, families, and thinking of the domestic church and parents? Um, how would you encourage them to to engage with these uh, and and to take these this new learning in?
1: I'm really appreciative of that question Nathan because that it is always a concern as we enter into this this work of dialogue and and, and really uh, theologically uh, coming to the point of seeing what our our actual divergences and convergences are is is this taking root in the family, is this taking root um, in local congregations? Do people even have a sense that, that these developments have taken place or, or is it put on a bookshelf somewhere and neglected or, or, or confined to the academy, which it's not meant to be? Um, everything we do does have a pastoral orientation to it. Um, and it's, it's very unfortunate, I'll, I'll say, um, in thinking about that, that sometimes in the society in, in which we live, which can be, uh, influenced by, by more secular um, mentalities sometimes people uh, throw up their hands and say well what does this matter you know uh, we, we have an outstanding document on the filioque you know which is about a, a part of the creed that, that deals with the the holy spirit uh it's a really outstanding document but there might be some who say well why, why, are, why are we we uh, it seems like nitpicking on on the these these quote unquote little issues uh but but, but uh, a Catholic mindset and a Christian mindset would be, no, these issues are important. These issues are very important. They have to do with our understanding of God, hence our understanding of the human person. Of what we do proceeds from who we are, uh, um, you know, and who we understand ourselves to be. So so these things are important. So, Getting it out there and, and helping people uh, to, to appreciate what, what has been done and, and to think about reflect about it um, is very valuable. So, so just first, thank you for the question. Then, um, then to answer the question, um, there, there are a few things I would say. First, a good thing to do is to look at these documents as, as they are meant to be received. And that is they are steps. They are steps on the journey to Christian unity. They are never complete until Christian unity is achieved but to look at them as steps, steps that, that we can take, and also that perhaps even we, we, can, we can take a step further, you know, in our own conversations. Um, so many of these documents, well, they're all available actually. Um, if you go to the USCCB website, click on our, the, our, the Committee for Ecumenical and Religious Affairs, yeah, you'll see them there. Also, the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity has a wonderful website. Your own website has so many wonderful resources that are all there online, uh, free of charge. Um, One of the ways in which they can really impact the community is through um, local clergy associations, which is such a great blessing. In, In numerous parishes I was involved with, you had these ecumenical clergy associations where you would come together um, and sometimes it would be about, you know, local issues of concern, um, maybe to do social justice or, 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 or with, with civil uh, government concerns. Uh, but why not enrich those conversations further by once in a while introducing one of these documents, Absolutely. one of these texts, the Justified in Christ text from, from the Evangelical Dialogue is a great example for them to read these texts together. To say what do I see of myself in this? What do I don't? What what don't I see? Um, and to allow them to be the impetus for conversation, um, so impacting the clergy, and allowing that to influence their their teaching and their preaching uh, can be very helpful. So that that's one way. But then also taking it into perhaps study groups. Um, study groups of, of lay people who can really look at these documents and consider them and 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 discuss them. As I mm-hmm. mentioned, they're, they're not complete products. So so our engaging in them uh, w- w- would really be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so they are tools. They, they are to be viewed as as tools. And maybe even to, to use some of them and to ask, um, you know, could 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 this have some sort of an impact upon our our local congregation's activities? Mm-hmm. Um you think about things like um, right now, our our national dialogue with the United Methodist Church is is developing uh, a, a theological project on the notion of the implications of our baptismal identity on our understanding of the crisis at the border. Mm. Um, and so you, you you think about something like that that might actually be, not only to, to reflection in the local community, perhaps even actions of social justice. Um, so, so, so those are some things. And then with the seminaries, a wonderful approach to seminary education and formation is, 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 is imbuing the whole curriculum with, with an ecumenical viewpoint, you know, which, which the documents call us to. Um, to, to, to have a course on ecumenical dialogue, yes, that's important, but, but even to interweave it in other courses. So, for instance, we have documents on apostolicity uh, with the uh, World, Lutheran World Federation. Why not include that in an ecclesiology course mm. uh, where, where the Catholic position is, is, is very concretely articulated uh, with great nuance and detail? What a wonderful tool to help teach ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. So there, there are so many possibilities. You, you got me going.
0: <laughs> well, I'm even thinking about, um, oh, what is it from the uh, World Council of Churches, the um, the Church Towards a Common Vision, mm-hmm. and talking about the idea of koinonia, which I had um, mm-hmm. uh, Steve Harmon, the Baptist theologian, on this podcast recently, and talked about this idea of koinonia as a, an exchange. And Pope John Paul II talks about Humanism, not simply being an idea exchange of ideas, but a mutual exchange of gifts. And so within these, uh, within either seminary education, but also, you know, pastoral councils and whatnot, how do we see the way that we're uh, partnering together, learning from one another as an exchanging of the gifts of the Church of Christ or the Kingdom of God? That gets in the receptive ecumenism, but uh, it kind of finds uh, a good uh, grammar, if you will, within a document like uh, what was Release there, or what what you're mentioning as well.
1: Yes, I, ideally that that's that's what we're looking for, um, and and that's so very important. Um, but as as we're speaking about this, I I also think about the fact that Unitatis Redintegratio, that that document from the Second Vatican Council, that 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 really starts going into contemporary ecumenical movement, calls for all of us, the entire church, to be involved in the ecumenical movement. According to our gifts, mm-hmm. uh, some do so as scholars, some do so as clergy, some do so, do so as laity, some in the university, some in the congregation, some in, in daily living. But all of us, regardless, have been called in some way to promote Christian unity. And that does involve, as you, you mentioned, uh, you know, as, as Pope John Paul II so, so beautifully articulated, um, an exchange of gifts. You know and, and a willingness to, to do that it's unfortunate we, we in the past have had the experience of siloing and and, and not sharing our gifts mm. all, all of the time I, I i've had the privilege in 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 my life to to do some studies at oxford university in england uh, but there was a very long time catholics could not study there mm. um it, it, it was it was no not not permitted at all but but there's an openness there and at the same time. We we've opened the doors as well. You think about exchanges, the Russian Orthodox Church sending seminarians to Rome, and now we're sending seminarians to to Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have opened the doors. Many of us to yeah. to exchanges, um, to being together. But um, there there are other gifts too, in addition to the intellectual that we should share. And one of them I'm thinking about in particular is another manifestation. Uh, of our dialogue with the Pentecostals. And that is um, the John 17 movement, uh, mm-hmm. which you might've heard of, which, which is intriguing. I was able to participate in, in their retreat this past year. They had Joe Toscini, who is a Pentecostal pastor who is very involved with that. And I would call that exchange, an exchange of the gifts of the heart. You know, there, there, there are different types of ecumenism. There, there's ecumenisms of, 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 you know, dialogue of truth. Dialogue of charity, but this one is very much so. I would say, an exchange of of the heart. The emphasis in these sorts of meetings with Pentecostals and Catholics has to do with uh, prayer Mm -hmm. and at table fellowship, fellowship at the meal, uh, Mm -hmm. as as the the major emphasis, and 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 really spiritual ecumenism is is the key. that, That reflection together, that conversion of heart together, which is so beautiful, and we have a number of bishops involved with that. Bishop Peter Smith um, from from Portland is involved. Bishop James Massa from Brooklyn. Uh, Bishop uh, Eduardo Nevarez from Phoenix is very, very involved. In fact, during the the meeting of the U.S. bishops this past November, he preached a homily all about the John 17 movement to all of the bishops, um, saying how how encouraged he was by, even, even Cardinal Tobin, from Newark gave a presentation there last year. Um, so uh, the bishops are, are very much involved and behind the, this, this beautiful movement of, of an ecumenism of, of the heart. So that exchange of gifts in any way that we can offer them, uh, we, we do with, with great uh, enthusiasm.
0: Mm-hmm. And what I love is, as we've been kind of talking about this, I mean, our conversation started with your own journey of experiencing, you know, family member, it was a grandmother that uh, didn't partake in the Eucharist because of the divide in in Christians. And yet there's a continued progression. And I think the, the image that is so often used within ecumenical di- uh, documents, um, especially within our own Catholic church, is the image of the pilgrim, the pilgrim <clears> church <throat> or the pilgrim people of God. And that um, our movement towards unity is one that it's come comes along the way, you know, it's not one in which uh, we're figuring out like a math problem. It's not one in which we're saying you have to become like us exactly, or you guys are illegitimate Mm -hmm. either way. Um, But it's that we're being, uh, we're being changed more and more into the likeness of Christ as we pilgrim together, experience Christ in one another. And that as we're changed more and more like Christ, we're changed more and more like each other. And uh, just the way you're describing the development of these documents and the history of it kind of paints that picture in my mind for me. And so I'm wondering, as we kind of close, you know, we're, we're a church on the way, a people on the way. What are you hopeful for as we continue to move forward, perhaps even if we can be more specific with evangelical and Pentecostal relationships with the Catholic Church?
1: That that is that is a wonderful question. I so agree that um, when we when we say and acknowledge, I am on a pilgrimage. I am on a journey to Christ. Um, I, I have my own limitations and faults that i I'm, I'm bringing to Christ in the hopes of growing closer to Him. And now I'm turning around. I'm seeing. My evangelical and Pentecostal brothers and sisters doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> I, I, you know, you you begin to realize, yes, we are on this road together. We are journeying together, um, and so that that's so very important. And I, I like also the point you made that 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 reminds me of of, of Pope Francis uh, more than once mentioning the point. It's not about absorption. No, it's not about absorption. We 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 recognize um, so many gifts that our, our Christian brothers and sisters. Um, of different denominations holds and cherish. And we want to celebrate that um, together. Uh, so going on the journey together, what, what do we see on the horizon? I, I think we see a lot of hope, mm. a lot of hope in terms of our together recognizing the world needs Christ. Mm. And ho- I'm, I'm hopeful, particularly with Pentecostals and evangelicals, that we might be able to commit ourselves to working together to building up a culture that is receptive to the gospel uh, mm. that is around us. So, uh, really, uh, together, having that commitment in terms of, of, of the values we hold in common, uh, which at times, to be frankly honest, can, can be criticized uh, fiercely, um, to, to build on, on those commonalities, uh, to try to do our best to, to be a voice in the public square that is, that is welcoming of all that the Lord Jesus wishes to give to us. And then along with that, my, my hopes um, expand to the idea of our looking at each other, recognizing each other as Christians who have this, this common love of Christ and affirming that and, and not looking at each other and first seeing difference.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Looking at each other and seeing what we have in common and recognizing in each other, brothers and sisters, in Christ that, that we have much to build upon, uh, but but we have much to celebrate.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. That's a that's a wonderful image, and we'll continue to move forward in that in the pilgrim way of Christian unity. So Father Well, thank you so much for joining us on the call today and, and sharing with us your experience, your love for Christ and your own wisdom in the world of ecumenism.
1: Thank you so much. And and God bless you and all of your work, Nathan, and, and God bless all, all of the listeners. Let us all, all work together in our context to 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 build up the body of Christ. Amen.